0: Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. Woo! I love it. I absolutely love Fridays. I don't know about you guys. End of the work week, and it is time to sit back and relax or if you're a turkey hunter a lot of states are are uh, turkey hunting right now so good luck if you're turkey hunting right now I gotta wait like three more weeks until I get to go out and uh, chase some gobblers but work week is over or today you can coast through your work day let's not think about work at all today and you just think about this podcast think about hunting and uh, I had a really good conversation with a gentleman uh this week and his name is Travis T-Bone Turner now for those of you guys who are familiar with the hunting industry Travis is on um tv shows like the bone collectors real tree road trips and, and several other places but what a lot of people don't know is that he is a world champion archer, he is a four-time Georgia State champion archer and he has a wealth of knowledge when it comes to archery and archery equipment. So I I loved picking his brain this week and as you as you'll find out through this podcast, he knows a lot when it comes to archery and uh, he has a really cool story of how he started w- what he did to get to where he's at today. And uh, I think you're going to find that really exciting. So I'm going to shut up and I'm going to get right into this podcast with Travis T-Bone Turner. All right. On the phone with me now is Travis T-Bone Turner. How's it going today, Travis?
1: Oh, good, man. Thanks for having me on, Dan. I I look forward to chit-chatting with you guys.
0: Yeah, no worries. All right. So first question that pops into my head is – how did you get the name T-Bone, and who gave it to you?
1: The name uh, T-Bone, I got um, back in about 1998 or 99. I'd never been called T-Bone ever, and I, I guess I was in my early 20s then, and I'd been doing a lot of work with Realtree and uh, helping them with the Monster Bucks DVD. Well, back then, it was actually a video series. And um, they had asked me to play a character on those uh, video and DVDs, uh, kind of if, if People are familiar with it on the Monster Bucks DVDs, especially from about uh, volume five all the way up till about 18 or 20, right around there, for about a 10 or 12, 13-year stretch. In between the hunts, they would always have like a little archery tournament. And um, after about four or five years of it just being Michael, uh, David Blanton, and Bill Jordan, they had uh, you know asked me what you know just... I was helping them set up the 3D course, and they had asked me to help them, you know, come up with some other things to do. And I said, why don't you do this? Because uh, Foxworthy had been hunting with Realtree for quite a bit, and he played a character along with another guy named uh, Shane. I forget Shane's last name, but Jeff Foxworthy and Shane. Shane was a disc jockey out of uh, Nashville. They played Willie and Billy on the Incomplete Deer Hunter series that Realtree had put out. There was three three volumes of that. And I said, why don't you get them to shoot against y'all uh, you know, bring a little more comedy into the Monster Bucks, and uh, even if you, even if it's fake, you know, just come up with something to where they shoot against you guys, and they, they you know, they look like they can't shoot, and their equipment subpar, but yet they just go ahead and, you know, whack y'all's tail <laughs> on the on the archery range, and um, I said, why And they they came to me. Shane wasn't comfortable about shooting, and they told me they said, uh, you know we'd like for you to do that. You know, and uh, you could be with Foxworthy. Foxworthy loved the idea. I had really gotten him into archery and uh, set him a bow up. He loved the idea. Realtree loved the idea. And they, they had asked me and I, you know, I didn't expect them to ask me to be on the video. I was fine helping behind the scenes. So they said, can you come up with a, you know, a character, you know, with some, you know, props and stuff. So I got an old whitetail hunter bow and the old, uh, floppy hat, flannel shirt, and I <laughs> got me a pair of those Bubba Tees from a local truck stop for about three bucks and formed them up for me. And I, you know, I said, what do y'all think about this character? And they said, that's perfect. Well, five minutes before we were going to be, begin filming said, you know, what are we going to call you? Foxworthy is Willie. Shane was Billy, but we need, you know, a, a kind of a hick name for you. Travis just ain't quite hick enough. Hick enough. And I, I just threw it out there. I'd never been called T-bone before ever. I just said, What about T-Bone? I mean, kind of off the fly because it's short, (laughs) easy to remember, and they said, yep, we'll try this. So, you know, the whole time we're filming this, we're thinking maybe this is going to be a one-year deal where we throw a little comedy in there and, and, you know, and that'll be done. And and that's about about what we all thought. But fortunately, it was well-perceived by, you know, everybody across the country, women and kids, and we kept it going. And I guess that was kind of the creation of the T-Bone monster there. (laughs)
0: That's kind of funny. I tell you what, I can remember one episode, and I when I was younger, I didn't watch a lot of hunt, outdoor hunting media or anything like that. But I I remember running across one of those D, one of those uh, VHS tapes or DVDs or whatever it was, and mm-hmm. T Bone had a big V cut out of the bill of his hat. And that's, that's where, right. that's yeah. where the bowstring went. Now the, fu- you guys were doing it as a joke. My uncle talked me in to doing that to one of my hats so, <laughs> and I was doing it serious for serious.
1: Really? Yeah. So
0: I was like, Hey man, if this is a joke, I can't have a big V cut out of my, <laughs> the bill of my hat when I'm <laughs> in the tree stand.
1: We actually, uh, uh, I don't know about three years after that, we actually had them production made hats. Those hats were for sale. Actually they're we sold quite a few of them. Uh, we, we call that like whenever I do appearances and stuff, even to, even till, even now, uh, folks or kids or stuff, they bring a pair of scissors and they say, Hey, will you bonify my hat? They call it a <laughs> hat. And they'll buy a hat off the shelf and they'll have me cut a V in it. And then I sign it and give them the V back and they keep the V and, but we actually had a bunch of those production model hats. We sold quite a few of them back in the day, but, uh, yeah it was a funny little thing I, I come up with that because the hat that I wore as t-bone was a real long bill you know it was a fishing hat yeah so it was like twice as long as a normal hat because it's made to keep the shade on your face you know a lot of saltwater fishermen wear them or trout you know fly fishermen wear them and I thought you know in true redneck fashion instead of when you're shooting your bow turn your hat around backwards to where the bill doesn't come into play t-bone ain't gonna do that he hes he's a smart redneck so he cuts the V in there so his string can still still come so he can utilize that that bill
0: <laughs> I tell you what so. Well, I tell you what. Let's let's go all the way to the beginning and okay. um I want to talk about your you as a kid and I want to talk about maybe who got you into hunting and to archery and uh, I guess what kind of effect did, did it have on you back then
1: well, um, kind of like uh, so many different, uh, you know, uh, so many people, I actually hunted and and found my love for the outdoors. You know, before I even started archery, um, I kind of got introduced to archery twice, I should say. First, um, I had hunted, started hunting with my dad and uncle. Uh, they were the main two that got me going into it when I was five, six. I'd tag along, and we, like so many people, would squirrel hunt, rabbit hunt. My dad didn't deer hunt too much because even you know back in the seventies. There wasn't a tremendous amount of deer in Georgia, so uh, but we plenty of rabbits, squirrels, quail hunting. We you know mushroom hunt, all that kind of stuff. And um, he bought me a bow for when I was ten years old. I was in the fifth grade. I I had I'd gotten all A's, so my reward. He bought me a bow. But my dad wasn't really uh, bought me a recurve bow, and you know he he just bought a bow because the the legalities was you had to pull 45 pounds with the bow to hunt with it. So he got me a 45 pound bow. Well, we all know with a recurve, if you're nine or 10 years old, 45 pound bow is pretty stout. So my dad was doing good by getting me a bow, but my first introduction into it was not a pleasant one, meaning I couldn't pull the bow back. It was too hard. You know, I'd hit my arm. A lot of classic scenarios that, that goes on still today of you know a person not getting fitted correctly for the bow, I had that same experience. But I tried shooting it, and you know, like so many kids, you know, I'd, I'd get bored with shooting it at a target or trying to hit the target. I'd shoot it up into the air, you know, because we all like watching an arrow fly. And shoot it up, go grab my arrows out of the field, and shoot it up again. And then my neighbor um, Dewey hires he he was big into archery, and I'd go down there and shoot with him a little bit. But my bow was just too much bow for me, so I kind of put it down after about a year and didn't play with it anymore well in my mind here I am 10 years old I thought um, you know I can't pull 45 pounds because it was a bad experience well you go through quite a transformation from 10 to 18 so here I am playing high school football you know I'm a 265 to 300 pound uh, lineman you know and I'm benching 250 to 300 pounds but in my head you know I've still gun hunted and, and everything but I hadn't tried bow hunting again well I'm, uh, I graduate high school, and I still, in my my head, this is, I guess, how shallow I was thinking. I thought that even though I'm bench pressing almost 300 pounds, I can't pull 45 pounds. So my friend started bow hunting, and I said, no, I'm not going to get into bow hunting. All you do is wound a bunch of deer. You know, here I am, 18 years old. You're just going to wound a bunch of deer. I was in the hunting club with them, but I was looking forward to gun season. And we were fishing in the summertime. Well, they said, you better get a bow. We're, you know, we're going to start. You know, shooting in the backyard, we're not going to fish as much. And I was hanging out with them, so I, they talked me into getting a bow. Well, when I went to buy the bow, um, the the guy set it up at 64 pounds, and he goes, I need you to draw it back so I can set your peeps out. And I said, no, no, that's all right. Just tie it in where you think it needs to be. Because <laughs> because, because in my head, I was embarrassed to try to pull it. I'm like, here I am, a big guy, and I'm not going to be able to pull 64 pounds. I'll go try, and rather than be embarrassed in the store with all my buddies and everything, I'll try it at home and see how I do well, while we were there, the people that ran the local archery range, the 3D outdoor archery range, were there talking to my buddies, talking them into coming out and trying 3D archery. Well, I'm not even concerned about that. I'm just getting my bow set up. It's on a Wednesday, I remember. Well, then I go home that night and I say, okay, well I got to try to pull this thing back at some point. I've done spent $300 on this whole setup, and you know, $300 was a lot to me back in you know 1987, 88. I said I got to try to pull this back, so I get it home and I'm in my room and I'm like, "All right, here we go." Counting down one, two, three, and I about ripped the wheels off the thing. It was 64 pounds, and it was just like just a calm went over me. I'm like, "Man, I'm going to be able to do this. This is awesome." So I went to my buddy's house. Um, You know, we all got together Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and we shot all day. And you know, I got I got shooting pretty good, and I was pretty comfortable. And Saturday night, they're talking about going to that tournament on Sunday. And they said, you know, Trevor, you going to go with us? And I'm like, heck no, man. I just bought a bow three days ago. I'm not going to no tournament. And they said, well, we've never been either, and you're shooting good. So, you know, let's all go. So six or seven of us went to a local tournament. We signed up in the novice division uh, shooting, you know, the 3D targets. Actually, it wasn't even 3D targets back then. It was They were paper targets up against bales, and they had like pencil rings in the vital areas. That's way back then. But we shot and we signed up in the novice division turns out there were 37 people in the the novice division and call it a you know blind hog find in an acre and i i won the whole thing owned a boat for three or four days and i won my first tournament beat all my buddies beat the you know in that novice class so needless to say i was hooked like a fish from that point on so i kind of had a bad experience you know when i was 10 9 or 10 or 11 and then got reintroduced to it and you know i I'd never been good at sports, I mean I played sports in high school but I was just a participant so to speak and uh, I finally found something that I was really, really good at which was archery and I just couldn't absolutely get it, get enough of it and that same scenario, seeing how important that it was to be fitted and, and, and have the confidence in archery is one of the main reasons I started with Realtree because um, I told them, those guys, I had my own store by that time, and they began trusting me with their work, and I told them, I said, I want to be, the, to facilitate all the people that you introduce into hunting, because you see so many people in magazines, and you see so many celebrities in magazines and on TV shows, that you can tell that their draw drawing's too long or too short, right. that their sight's not right, they're not set up correctly, and I told them that, you know, I'm not saying that I'm God's gift to archery, but, you know, I, I am... One that sets up bows, and and uh, you know whether it's me or somebody else, I just let them know that let me be the guy, or uh, you know I'm offering my services to to help set up and make sure that anybody within the industry or celebrities or whoever um, I want them set up so that they have a great experience in bow hunting, archery, and outdoors, so that they can spread their love and their passion to other people. So it's kind of a you know paying it forward type thing. So that's kind of got me what. Started with real tree, and even to this day, I don't own a store anymore. I sold my business in 2007, and we're quite busy with real tree road trips, and of course, bone collector show. But even to this day, I have a shop in my basement, and I still set up 45 to 50 bows a year, just because that's what bro- brought me to the dance.
0: Gotcha. Now I tell yeah. you, there's definitely a difference between having, I guess, an average guy set up your bow, and uh, a, a professional, someone I'm going to call a professional setting up your bow. So yeah, I, I, myself, I don't own a press. I don't, I don't put anything on. I, I bring it to someone to do it, to set up my, uh, my bow. And right. I've had some bad experiences with, you know, some part timer at a, a big box store do it. Yeah. But now I found the guy and I go to him every year, whether he works in the archery department of that store or not. So, right. There's a big difference.
1: Absolutely. Once you, um, you know, and I, I can say this all across the country, I've got to do lots of grand openings and work with a lot of great Botex across this country. And, you know, uh, box stores are, are very important for getting our gear and stuff like that. But I can't say enough about the small independent dealer or the the, the mom-and-pop shop or someone that is so certified that uh, that can really – uh, is a good pro tech, uh, a bow tech, and someone that can, you know, get you, uh, you know, you set up correctly because it, it is uh, invaluable to make sure that your bow's tuned and more importantly, fitting you like a glove because it can make your experience and your, you know, your hunts and everything just so much more enjoyable. So save sometimes saving that dollar, you know, getting a, getting a bow off of line or, you know, buying your buddy's bow may not be so much if it doesn't fit you. So the money you spend for a a a, a reputable pro shop is well spent.
0: Right. So let's go back to when you won that little novice division tournament in a local Mm -hmm. archery tournament. How old were you then?
1: It was 1988. So I was uh, 19. I was 19.
0: Okay. So with that said, then um, it says here in 1991, you, won the asa 3d world championship yeah now what happened between the age of 19 and 1988 and 1991 when you won that
1: well i i I worked for mercedes-benz actually in atlanta so my 40 hours a week was devoted to my job but i can tell you every other moment i wasn't i wasn't married i didn't have kids i still lived at home so I devoted a ton of time to archery. Like I told you, in, in 1988, I was just, I, I couldn't get enough of archery. I mean, I, I breathed it. I i spent every available hour at a local pro shop, Buckskin Archery in Kennesaw, Georgia. I shot every tournament. Sometimes I'd shoot three and four and five tournaments a weekend. We'd drive all over the state. I traveled so much. I mean, i I literally was a sponge. Latching on to all the local professionals, and, um, you know, thank, thank goodness they liked me and, uh, let me latch on to them, but I could not get enough. So I just shot and shot and shot. I'd won my first, won quite a few local tournaments, but then I won my first state championship in 1990. And then, um uh, Jesse Moorhead had asked me to, to be on the Browning National Factory Team. They picked six people across the country, and Jesse Moorhead, um, He's a famous 3D archer and just a, a mentor of mine. He took me under his wing and, and had asked me to be on the factory team, which, man, I thought I'd won the lottery. I'd, like I was asked to be in the Olympics, I couldn't believe it, that they had asked me. It had seen something in me and my talent. And uh, that same year I won the world championship. In, uh, it was held in, actually in Valdosta, Georgia. There was um, 520-something people in, our, in the class. Uh, the largest men's class, and I call it blind luck, but I, I shot the best score for the whole weekend and got me a world championship.
0: <laughs> you know, there's a lot of people who may shoot archery their entire life, and they may shoot tournaments their entire life, and they'll they'll never win any type of world championship. What's the difference, in your opinion, between a good archer and a great archer?
1: I've never been asked that. Um, um, Well, one, you have to have confidence in your equipment. And then, you know, it's been said to so many people so many times that it's mental. Uh, You have to have confidence. You have to, just like golf, I compare golf and uh, archery a lot, is one of the sports, one of the few sports that you have to suppress your nervous energy. You have to have the ability You know, just like whenever a big buck steps out or if it's $10,000 on the line for a shot, you have to be able to suppress your nervous energy. You know, when you're playing basketball or baseball or, you know, lifting weights or, you know, karate or or whatever, you're wanting that nervous energy. You're wanting that extra boost of adrenaline, but you need to suppress it in archery, you know, because you have to stay calm and mentally and watch your breathing. There's just so many things. So um, the ability to do all that is want someone that takes it to the next level and then that's on the target part of it but you know 3D puts another aspect to it because you have to judge the yardage you not only have to shoot accurately you have to judge the yardage correctly believe in the yardage and then uh, you know uh, execute the shot so um, and, and another thing about archery is you know that that I find so attractive and I'm sure everybody else is is no matter how good you are, you can always get better. I mean, I, I, whether you're Levi Morgan or Jeff Hopkins or Dan McCarthy, a lot of the famous you know archers out there, Randy Omer or, or what have you, you can always get better.
0: So you won that in 1991, and then it looks like you won a couple more Georgia State championships. Um, what What took place after – I guess what took place. I mean, were were you trying to hunt this entire time too? And uh, I mean, so you were working, you were doing these tournaments, and were were you hunting as much back then, or, or just shooting?
1: Well, um, when you're, you know, in archery tournaments are really mainly just from January to about August, and then from about mid August or the third week in August all the way till through Christmas. Um, the, I'm not going to say there's no archery tournaments, but virtually there are no archery tournaments. So that leaves the whole fall open to deer hunt. Now, you know, at that time, throughout the 90s, I wasn't filming. So all I did was, you know, I'd work my job. Um, I worked for Mercedes-Benz up until 1992. After I'd won the world championship, I realized I didn't want to, you know, work for Mercedes-Benz the rest of my life. And I got tired of the traffic going in and out of Atlanta. a country boy in Atlanta. Just that didn't mix. And I thought, (laughs) you know what? (laughs) I thought while I'm young. And, uh, you know, my dad had always told me and my my uncles and stuff, they said, whatever you choose to do in life, make sure that you have a passion for it because you don't want a job that you hate. And, um, you know, I thought, well, you know, while I'm young, I still lived at home. I didn't have a, uh, you know, a family or a wife or, you know, very much responsibilities. I thought, you know what, I'll try doing something in the outdoor industry. I had no aspirations or even thought about being on a TV show or anything back then. I just... Loved archery and wanted to do something in that. So I took a big pay cut and went to work for a local archery shop. So my commute to work was shortened to only about 30 minutes rather than an hour and a half each way. And, you know, I was making about eight or $10,000 a year less, but, you know, I was doing something I loved. I get to work on bows, I get to tell hunting stories and, you know, have fellowship with all my buddies. And, uh, you know, I learned the insides and outs of retail. So, you know, life was good. You you work eighty hours a week, but you feel like you didn't work twenty. It's like, man, I wish I could work another twenty hours because I love this job so much. Well, I learned learned the ins and outs and opened my own store. Me and a buddy of mine had opened I'd, after two years of running that store. I opened up my own store uh, south of Atlanta, where the best hunting was, and then it actually moved down here. Uh, you know, in the country, and um, you know times were tough. I ain't gonna. I'm not gonna lie to you. The first three years that we were open it was really, really tough. A lot of blowing sandwiches and frozen pizzas were eaten, I can tell you that. But, um, you know, life was good. I was torn. I was still going around shooting lots of tournaments. Never missed a an IBO or an ASA all throughout the 90s. And I was making good money shooting because I had, you know, sponsors and partners, you know, within the industry. Hoyt, I've been with Hoyt for, you know, uh, over 20 years now. And I was with PSC back then. And when I'd won the world championships, I was with Browning and a lot of the accessory companies I was with and between the endorsements and then the contingency monies and then the money I'd win, you know, I I didn't win another world championships after 1991, but I, you know, consistently placed in the top 10 and was dragging a few happy Gilmore checks home. So uh, it was subsidizing my income along with, you know, having a store. And then in 1994, after two or three years of us being open, I bought my partner out and that's the same time, that I had met Bill Jordan, Michael Waddell, and David Blanton, and that's when the relationship with those guys started. I started setting up all their bows, became friends with them, helping with the monster boats behind the scenes. Then they asked me to play the character of T-Bone in 99, and then each year they'd ask me to hunt in front of the camera. And In about 2002 is when I uh, quit traveling with um, shooting tournaments because the prize money had went down quite a bit. I was more focused on my store. My store was doing phenomenal then because um, because of my connection with Realtree. And then also because of my tournament background, I built up a really reputable business. So I just focused on uh, doing seminars and clinics and stuff for Realtree, setting up their bows and, and, and getting to hunt a few times on camera with them. So kind of switched gears from tournament archery to you know hunting on TV around the early 2000s. Plus, I had met my wife, got married. And in uh, in 2005, my son was born.
0: That sounds like a, a very busy time in your life that from that, uh, from the time that you quit Mercedes Benz to the time, I mean, basically to now it sounds yeah. really busy.
1: Well, it, it is, but, I mean, it is busy, but, you know, again, I go back to that. My, you know, my dad and then, you know, I, I feel I do it all over again. There's a lot of hours, but you feel like you don't feel like they're wasted hours because, one, you're working on your, your future and you're doing something that you love and you're so passionate about. Um, you know, it's no different than a guy that works nine to five. He'll work 40 to 50 hours a week at his regular job, and then he's spending that much time on his hobbies. I'm just extremely fortunate that my hobby and my passion is my career. So yep. uh, I'm sure a lot of guys would love to spend more time on their hobbies and their passions, but they're, they're during, you know, their nine to five job gets in the way. So I'm very fortunate in that respect. I I'd like to think that we stay humble and grounded with that outlook on it.
0: Yep. Now, quick, quick side note. You mentioned you lived in Atlanta and worked for Mercedes Benz. I, I lost my finger in Atlanta, Georgia. And you did. I did. In a uh, factory in College Park. Okay. So, and I, and when you said the traffic is horrible, the traffic is horrible down there.
1: Yes, it is.
0: That made me never want to go to a big city again.
1: Yep. Me too. I I said uh even when I go back, you know, a couple times a year, you know, I have to go to the airport quite a lot, but it's on the south side, so I really don't hit the traffic, but if I have to go through Atlanta and hit the traffic and I'm like man. It just it just makes <laughs> me know that I I made the right decision, and that and that we're country boys. That's exactly right.
0: So yeah, with you working in in a 3D or in an archery shop, you've probably I mean you've seen a lot of products come and go. You know, from being the shop owner to today, where you're being endorsed by certain companies. What what's one thing? or let's i want to basically talk about the evolution of hunting products you know the bows have gotten faster um mm-hmm. the, you know all the equipment it seems like it's it's less hey let's throw this together and call it a hunting product to more of an uh you know focused engineering and you know well thought out planning in detail to you know to the nth degree what's what's your observation on that period of time that you've been in the hunting industry,
1: oh, it, it amazes me. I'm uh, even to this day. I'm still maybe you call it a self-proclaimed proclaimed guru. I just love. I'm like Inspector Gadget. I just love seeing what they're going to come up with, and I love helping a lot of the companies that we work with, being you know, do research and development and trying to build better mousetraps. But um, w- one thing. And I, I think I'm answering your question, but like release aids have come a long way. Like when I was in 1988, release aids were only been around for a little while. So there was only three or four to choose from. Now you've got easily 200 to choose from. And they, you know, the two biggest accessories, in my opinion, that are the most important are the arrow rest and the release, because you can aim with a toothpick, you know, no offense to these great sight companies, but you can use a toothpick to aim with. But if you have a really poor rest, a $400 sight ain't going to make up for a poor rest. So it's really important that you have a really good quality rest that performs well, that allows you to tune the air well, and then also a release needs to be crisp, clean, and consistent. And you know, the the tolerances and the machining part of the releases are really good these days. Um, you know, Ball. you know, a lot of the main companies have really done a fantastic job of making some really, really quality releases. So I'm real happy about that. The bows, you know, that, that kind of speaks for itself. Back in the 80s, there was only, you know, we'll say 30 bows to choose from. And now, between all the companies, there's probably 20, 25 companies, and then each one of them have... 10 to 15 models. So there's all kinds of bows to choose from and anything you want from smoothness of the cam to long axle to axle to short axle to axle parallel limbs, reflex risers, deflex risers. I mean, there's all kinds of different models to, to scratch your itch as far as the, the bows. And I keep, I keep thinking like, you know, back in the 80s and 90s, a 300 foot per second was the, what everybody went for. And now it's, it's achieved with ease. Yeah, um, getting 300 feet a second, and you can do it with extreme accuracy and forgiveness. So that's pretty amazing. But you, one of the the biggest inventions or innovations I've seen for bow hunting and target archery in the last 20 years, I would definitely put in the top three is the laser rangefinder. That to me is a, is the extremely valuable um, a tool for bow hunting and an extremely uh, tool for um, training as a unknown distance 3D archer because I used to take a basketball before laser laser rangefinders and I would kick a basketball and go on long walks in the afternoon and judge to the <laughs> basketball or, and then walk it off step by step or I'd you know set up targets and know the distance and sit there and study them and you know I didn't have that laser rangefinder whereas I've got the number three rangefinder that was ever introduced into George I have still got it in my safe downstairs it was a big heavy bush now and it was about the size of a small shoebox. but <laughs> yeah, yeah but but oh, it was it was worth its weight in gold and uh it still works um I, I sometimes i'll put a battery in it and use it and it still works but that was probably in about 1996 i guess 95 or six when i got it but gosh I, I tell people all the time in seminars i'd rather i'd rather forget my bow sometimes than my rangefinder when going to the tree stand because It's just, oh, it's just helped our efficiency so much. I mean, you know, we're seeing guys on YouTube and and a lot of these hunting shows and stuff shooting deer, you know, way beyond 60 yards. And you'd have never, ever even tried that way back in the, you know, the mid-90s. So uh, it's really made, it's been a game changer as far as hunting and and making sure that we're more proficient hunters.
0: So another question about your, your shop, when somebody would come into your shop and let's say they were having problems, be, you know, being accurate. What are, what were some of the biggest problems that you saw um, as a bow shop owner with people, I guess, making mistakes, whether it was form or whether it was equipment not fitting them?
1: Yeah, but, uh, some of the common problems are uh, the equipment not fitting them. So many people would uh, – the, the two biggest things are too long of a draw length. Not so much nowadays as it was back then because people can learn a lot online and kind of, they can not necessarily get it correct, but they can get real close on their own. Um, You still need to have it fine-tuned, but too long a draw is common because so many people want to shoot faster and we all know that longer draw length means faster. And then also, they shoot too heavy of a bow. They try to shoot too heavy, one, if it's a macho thing, I'm not sure, you know. They just want to be able to tell their buddies they're pulling 70 pounds when... Effectively, they really need to be shooting in the low 60s to be consistent. You know, especially when you're going through some practice regimens of shooting, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 hours a day. You need to shoot a little lower poundage. And then, uh, two, you know, naturally people drop their arm. You know, if they haven't been taught properly, they they drop their arm or they'll punch the trigger. That's one of the biggest ones. You know, and collapse on the shot and punch the trigger, and that bl- that breeds. Uh, anticipation and then anticipation uh, starts flinching and then flinching. We all know starts target panic, which uh, is a is a very huge hurdle for most archers to get over. It's if you shoot long enough and you shoot not the proper form, you're you're going to go through some some form of target panic eventually. Most all archers that shoot a pretty good bit go through it eventually if they're not stay on top of their game and shoot good form. So. Those are the main things.
0: So how do you beat that?
1: Target panic. Target panic is uh, it's a mind over matter, um, meaning like you start flinching, you start dropping your arm, and you start punching the trigger. Well, your mind tells you that, hey, I'm punching the trigger. And then if you flinch, you know, you don't like that feeling when the bow, so many people feel like the bow's taking taken away from them or it's wanting to collapse on them. And, you know, you, you start collapsing on the shot or you flinch and it doesn't go off. So the cam starts to go over and it's just a real eerie feeling and makes you sick at your stomach when it happens. So when you start flinching, you you know you're doing bad things. So what you end up doing is subconsciously, you know that you're going to flinch when the pin hits the dot. So subconsciously, to not flinch or to not have target board or, you know, to not collapse, you subconsciously will never let the pin touch the dot because you know, that when that pin touches the dot, you're going to flinch. And you don't want to flinch, so you stop yourself from flinching by not letting the pin touch the dot. So then what happens is you start aiming low. You start holding under the target. You can hold anywhere, but commonly most people aim underneath the target, and they start setting their sights to hit two or three inches high so that, so that you hit the dot, compensating, if you will. And then, then you learn that, and then you have to set your sight where it's four or five inches. And then usually what someone does is they start doing drive-bys, is what I call them. It's like right when you're getting ready to shoot, you're holding four or five inches under the dot. And then right at the last second, you lift your arm up real fast. And then as the as the pin's going across the dot, you punch the trigger. And you know that, you know, consciously, you know you're doing wrong, but it gets you by for a, a day or two or a week or two. But the in, the in order to beat that, the target panic, it's mind over matter. So what you have to do is you have to learn to... Shoot the bow, execute without aiming, and then you have to learn to aim without shooting, and then you bring the two together because your mind can only do one thing at a time you know it's it's real easy to think that you know yeah well, I can squeeze the the release and then I can shoot at the same time. You can't consciously think of both of those things, so one of them has to be uh done basically subconsciously so what you 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 know the only thing that you really need to be ex- thinking about is the at the second of the shot is to, is to be aiming. It's like that pins right there. And then the whole shot needs to be muscle memory. So in order to do that, I recommend that you stand at five yards from the target, make sure that you're aiming level. So many people set a target on the ground and they aim down at a 45 degree angle, make sure the target's up and that you're shooting, you know, where your, your arm is level and you're shooting, you know, basically four to five foot into the target. So you pull the bow back, put a piece of tape in front of your sight where you can't see your pins, or either take your sight off of the bow. And I always tell people to try to dim the lights in the room as, as much as possible. A lot of people tell you to close your eyes, but um, at first I, I used to do that, and I told people to do that. But when you close your eyes and you're anchored in on your shot, your eyes actually straighten up in your head so it messes with your equilibrium. So what I tell them to do is take the sight out of play, plate, put a tape on the sight, take the sight off the bow, draw back and anchor in and then just aim at a blank target. Don't have any dots on there. And then just really focus on, you don't care where the arrow hits, you just wanna hit that target. You just wanna execute the shot. Squeeze the target, squeeze the trigger, I mean. Make sure that your muscles, your chest is being expanded. You have a ball between your shoulder blades and you're mashing that ball between your shoulder blades. You're pushing, you're pulling, you're squeezing and the shot goes off. It breaks, it executes. You do that for 20, 30 shots every day Really pour your heart into it. Don't Just don't go downstairs or, or work on the range, and then don't aim at all. Don't even go outside. So many people, I tell them to do this, or somebody tells them to do this, and they think, oh, I'm cured. They do it for three days, and they think I'm cured, and they go out in the yard because they can't wait to try it. Whereas I'm telling you, it's going to take some people weeks, months. This is something that you have to do. And then what you need to do is aim without shooting. So when you do have your sight on your bow, you can – draw back and aim at a dot that's in the target or aim out in the yard but don't ever shoot the bow just let the bow down just put your finger behind the trigger aim and just visualize that the shot went off and then if you don't want to do that or you can't do that you know I tell people to take an extra set of sights and while you're sitting there watching tv in the evening take the sight and just aim at things like the corner of the the corner in the room the light switch on the wall the knobs on the tv or or just things that are in your living room just visualize, you know, just put the pin on there and just hold it real steady and say, okay, I'm squeezing, squeezing, pushing, pulling, squeezing, bam. And the shot went on off. Your, your imagining and visualizing. And then after a couple weeks, put everything together, go outside at 20 or 30 yards and shoot you about five shots, but work on everything that you did, push, pull, squeeze and aim. And then, you know, if it, if it doesn't feel right, you know, and you're still holding low or you feel have those tendencies, that's a, that's, proof positive that you need to go back inside and and work on those things learn muscle memory on your execution and then learn uh aiming on a conscious level and then bring the two together
0: i tell you what i'm not so sure i have a bit of target panic as well yeah i think it's something that all archers at some point have to deal with and i'm i think i'm coming out of it thank god right but um and or it could be buck fever too
1: yeah and 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 there's different levels of it. I mean, you, like when I went through it, after I'd won the world championships, I went through it in 1992, and, I mean, it, it almost brought me to tears because I'm like, this is so silly. It's just mind over matter. but and, and it's better. You know, like one day it'll be better than others. It's like, wow, you know, I had a good day. And then other days it's like you, you can't even hit a target at, at 30 yards. It's all you can do to keep the pin on the target. And it's it's really silly, but it, it it's a true thing. I mean, a lot of people go through it.
0: So now I want to change gears just a little bit, and I want to talk about hunting. And um, I want to talk about the very first deer, whether it's a doe or a buck, that you killed with a bow. Was that okay. was that when you were nineteen?
1: Yes, it was. I I had uh, shot that tournament and one that we we shot like one or two or three tournaments that year. I had won the tournament. It was in June or July, but it was in June. It that's when it was. And, uh, you know, bow season comes in first of September, I'd gotten in the club with my buddies and, and I was just mainly focused on, on rifle hunting, but, um, you know, now heck I was shooting a bow. I was like, I was getting really ready to go, uh, bow hunting. So opening day, it's pouring down rain. I'd spent the night over at my, my buddy's house. We all piled up and, and left early for the hunting club, got there way before daylight, sat in the truck and it was just raining like crazy. We all knew the stands that we were going to and, my buddy's dad, uh, Wayne. Uh, my my dad didn't bow hunt, so uh, he wasn't in the club with us. But uh, Wayne had told me, said, "Look, I'm going to be about 200, 300 yards behind you." He goes, "It's raining. It's wet. If you shoot a deer," he goes, "You're going to need to you're going to need to holler at me because we need to jump on it, you know, f- to get on the blood." And I hadn't killed a deer yet ever with a gun, and so I'm my I deer hunted a couple of times, but never killed a deer. This was my first time with a bow in the stand, I get up there, and it's a built stand, and I'm sitting there, it's about 9.30, soaking wet, I had a trash bag for a for a, a, a rain suit, <laughs> I, I mean, I know a lot of guys have done that too, so I'm sitting there in a rain suit, and I'm like, yeah, this is crazy, but it was like opening day, and I was so jacked up, and long before trail cameras and things like that, but it was, I, you know, there was all kinds of deer sign in there, I knew I knew I was going to see something, so about 9.30, these six does came They came from my left. So I, I stood up real easy and I picked the biggest doe out and I looked behind them to see if there was any more deer coming. I drawed back. They didn't have a clue I was there. I touched the arrow off, or, you know, let the pin settle on there and my heart's beating out of my chest. I touched the arrow off and I it was like the whole world went into the matrix in slow motion. <laughs> I could watch that arrow. And seriously, I could, I, I mean, even today, I mean, that's been 20 something years ago. I, well, 30 years ago almost, I can see that arrow going into the into that critter right where it's supposed to be, and before the arrow hit the ground on the other side, I'm screaming at the top of my lungs, <laughs> Wayne! I'm yelling for my buddy's dad to get there. I mean, he meant, I know what he meant, but he meant just like as the deer runs off and holler at me. So I'm screaming, Wayne, 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 you know, because I was just so excited I shot a deer. These deer scattered, and two more deer are, are, you know, they're standing out there, kind of looking at me, giving me the chicken eye, because I'm just screaming at the top of my lungs. And these deer haven't run off, and you know, this day and age, if I'd have been thinking right, I'd have knocked another arrow and got another shot at another deer. But <laughs> I, I was just so excited about that one, so he come over there, you know, pretty fast, because he thought I'd fell out of the stand because as loud as <laughs> I was yelling. And uh, we we trailed the deer up. It only ran about seventy five yards. Just went over the hill, just out of sight, and just a big old just a big old fat doe. But man, you I, I was as proud of that as any buck I've ever killed.
0: So so then you probably caught the fever, right? I mean, what or I mean, you just you just got done killing the very you know your very first deer with a bow. I mean. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but i I think about deer hunting every day of the year, every day
1: yep oh, at, yeah. I mean,
0: did you catch fire then, or was it something that kind of progressed over time
1: well no no i i I loved hunting um and and I was really really wanting a deer with my gun, um and I was eager to do that, but once i the three d archery because of shooting at critters, even though they're not bleeding, I was shooting at you know. Uh, paper targets and that's what really got me into the bug but yeah that shooting that deer just sent me over the moon I'm telling you, it I just couldn't get enough I couldn't wait till the next year hunted up the rest of that year killed another deer with my gun killed one more of my bow and then another one with a gun couldn't wait for the next tournaments shot tournaments all year long and then couldn't wait to get back at bow hunting again just Anything having to do with a bow—I mean, even to this day, I feel the same way. I just can't get enough of it. like you know. Well, you know, we were scheduled to do this last night, and we went bow fishing all night last night. So uh, I was bending the string quite a lot last night too. So I—I—I I, I love anything to do with watching an arrow fly.
0: All right. So you—you you shot your doe, and you started—I mean, you started killing whitetails. What was your first non I guess, non- other than turkeys, but what was your first non-white-tail big-game species that you killed? And it, it doesn't have to be with a bow, it can be with a gun, too. Um, I'm trying to
1: think. Um, um, probably a hog. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was a hog. Okay. In Florida with yeah. It was with my bow. And then uh then a bear, mule deer, nail guy. Killed a all dad sheep. But yeah, hog was my next one. I like shooting hogs with them, too. Fish, lots of fish. I bow fished a lot. I, I love that short of killing a white tail, bow fishing is my favorite. Yeah. So I love it.
0: So all right. So you get hooked up with Realtree and, you know, that obviously opened up a lot of doors for you and you've had the opportunity to experience some, you know, some crazy, some crazy hunts, you know, to travel all over the nation. What's, um, what's one of your favorite hunts that either you look forward to every year or one of your favorite hunts that you've done?
1: Well, yeah, you're right. Um, I mean, my relationship with with Realtree is, is still extremely strong, and that, I, I have so much to be thankful for with them. But, um, yeah, that was a major stepping stone. I, I would have never thought that a, a big Georgia boy was going to get to hunt with Realtree and get to hunt all over. I, there's no way I would have ever been able to do that had it not been for Realtree. So I'm very fortunate as far as that goes. But, and all the hunts, you know, because whitetails are just about everywhere, you know, in, this, in the country. So all the hunts are so memorable to me. Um, but my two favorite states are Kansas and uh, Iowa. And probably one of my most memorable hunts, other than hunting with my son now, because those are so important to me now. But if we're talking my own hunt, um the first year we started Bone Collector, which was 2008, um, Myself and Nick, um, we was given a piece of property to hunt. I drew a tag. It took me four years to draw a tag in Iowa. And my um, um, White Tail properties had offered us a track of land to go hunt. So me and Nick, Nick was going to film me on that because he didn't have an Iowa tag, and I had that tag. So we went up there um, at the, well, I went the first week of, October for four days, hunted with Lee and Tiffany, didn't kill a deer, but you know when you draw that coveted tag you're gonna mark off several weeks to try to get it done throughout the year. So, went back on the 25th of October, had this piece of property, Men Nick scouted it out, hung the stands, it was in a deep dark, dark timber, I mean uh, uh, didn't have any trail cam pictures, knew there's some decent deer on there, but nobody hunted that property. They just owned it, but nobody hunted it, there was no stands. It basically like, here's a raw 300 acres, good luck, have at it. So we scouted it out, hung a stand, went back in there on October 29th. It's about an hour after daylight. Two small bucks came by, They went down into this bottom. It was about 9,000 yards apart. Took and rattled. Buck come, A small buck come out of there, and then a big buck come behind it. The small buck went right underneath it, and then the big buck was headed that way, and then he turned and started going right up the hill. He was going away. This was on the first year of uh, the first year of a uh, bone collector. So he's going away, and I snort wheezed. I'm like, man, we've lost him. He, he didn't see what he needed. We rattled his horn, so I snort wheezed, turned him around, and he came right back down, shot him at 26 yards. And even to this day, it's, it's the biggest buck I've killed with a bow. It scored 162. And uh, because, you know, it, it was the first year of bone collector, and, um, you know, Nick was there filming me. We had scouted it out. You know, there's a lot of ways to kill a deer. I'm kind of backing up now. You know, if you kill a 160 in Texas or if you kill a 160 in Iowa, you know, they're they're by all means they're all great, no matter what. You know, because they're memorable. But if they're, they're, I like to use the terminology, pride factor, being as we wasn't in an outfitter, somebody didn't put us in the stand. Um, you know, it wasn't a deer that they knew was going to be coming by. This was something that we we scouted on our own you rattle it in. It wasn't in a food plot. Not that not that there's anything wrong with any of that stuff. It's just, you know what I mean? Like right. all the things lined up to make it a huge pride factor. I mean, and, and Nick had filmed me and we just had started Bone Collector. It was on a piece of property that, you know, we scouted it out that it was in the deep timber. I, I couldn't be more happier. My, my whole goal was I was like, man, I want to kill a 150 in Iowa. That would be great. And, uh, you know, just everything came together. It was like, it was like a huge pimple popping, and I, I, I we, me and Nick, was both kind of teary-eyed in the tree stand on that one. It was real emotional.
0: So, let's see here. What else do we want to talk about? Let's talk about, you know, the the show and or not necessarily the show, but you know you're you're out there now, you're doing a lot of uh hunting throughout the year, you're doing a lot of um speaking engagements, and before we got on the phone, you mentioned that you are you are on the road roughly two hundred days of the year
1: yeah what's
0: what's that like
1: well it's um again you know uh going back to it's passionate you know you you have a passion to do something in the industry, you know. Way back when, I just wanted to do something in the industry, whether it be fletching arrows or working on a bow. Like I said earlier, I didn't have any aspirations of being on TV or you know being the national spokesperson for Whitetails Unlimited. It's just I was in the industry. I, I made sure that I had a strong work ethic. I, I I'd like to think I have a decent personality and am you know am likable. And as opportunities you know came across. And I was fortunate that some good ones came. You know, I I took advantage of them and, you know, walked through those doors as they opened, and I, I can, uh, you know, have progressed and, and and made a career out of it. You know, so that 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 is, you know, I'm I'm living a dream. I really am. I, but um, at the end of the day, no matter what you do for a living, you know, there's something that's always going to be. I hate to use the word negative, but something that pulls on you, and that that's the hardest part of our career, me, Michael, Nick, and people that do this for a living is, is the so much time away, meaning, you know, I have a 10-year-old son and my wife, I I am gone quite a lot. You just have to learn to, no matter what job a person does, whether my dad was a fireman, if you're in the military, there's something that's going to be, um, you know, rough on your family. So we just have learned to make it work, but that is the the, the one negative thing is that I'm gone so much. But, you know, days when you're having a bad day, you know, on the road and you, you know, you, 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 uh, you know, want to be home or whatever, I, I'm real, I, I think that I'm real good about having a reality check saying, you know what, there's probably three, four million rednecks out there that would cut their right arm off to trade places with you. And, you know, you, you're getting to, you know, get to hunt and everything like that. So it's real easy to have a reality check and say, you know, you know, cowboy up. Poke that bottom lip back in, and and uh, you know, do your job and enjoy your job. So, and it doesn't happen very often, but sometimes it does. You know, when you're like, gosh, I've been gone every weekend, and and I have even this year, I've I've not had a weekend at home since uh, before Christmas. So, um, and and I don't have another one at home till June. So, um, my weekends are through the week. So I have to make sure that I have good quality time uh, throughout the week. But you know, even even in the week I'm doing uh, you know radio interviews and then tons of office work because you know I I do a lot with bone collector as far as the the day to day we have to worry about endorsements, partnerships, commercials and I'm not complaining I'm just saying there's way more to it than just hunting you know throughout the fall and and then you're not busy in the off season there there really is no off season it's just a change in the season
0: right and I think that's one thing that a lot of people don't understand when it comes to the hunting industry is you don't just go out and hunt. It's, it's a business and it is, yeah. and you have to be on point all year round. It, yeah. It, everybody's like, man, I would love to do what those guys do. Well, you want to be away from your family 200 days out of the year. You want to have to, you know, do contracts and negotiations and all, all that stuff.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, and, and and there's a lot of good things too i mean like you hate to complain you, you and i'm not complaining it's just the facts by all means i i wouldn't i wouldn't trade for anything it's a it's a great great job it's a great great career um you know even when you're having bad days i mean you get to meet so many kids and you get to meet you know uh uh veterans and and, and you know american heroes and and you know they get to share their story with you and you know, kids that are terminally ill and get to share hunts and camps with them. And man, how inspiring is all that? And you get to hear, you know, people's hunting stories and, and uh, there's so much good. You get to meet so many good people across this country and that share the passion. I mean, whether I'm doing a banquet just outside of Philadelphia or I'm in Iowa doing a banquet or, or whatever, it's just good to see the diversity of the culture, but yet the culture is still the same. You know, I mean, we all have a common bond, which is the outdoors. and you know, I, I, it sounds kind of cliche, but we at Bone Collector talk about the brotherhood, and that's exactly it. We're getting experience the brotherhood firsthand, so it's so inspiring, and it's it's really neat to get to share that with everybody, um, uh, with all the venues and all the events that we get to go to. It's it's really cool.
0: All right. So, lastly, I have a son. He's he turns one year old next month, and you have a son. How old's your son? He's 10. He's 10. So you've probably already had him in the tree and and been educating him for a while now. How excited, how, you know, how excited are you about your hunting seasons now that you get to share it with him?
1: Oh, it's, it's, it's really my everything. I, I have to, I have to kind of dial it back to be honest with you, because I'm so gung ho about it. I'm, and, uh, I'm a, I had a reality check. I'll share this story with you. With I'm so gung-ho about it, and you know, you got to be careful when you're with a kid. You know, you don't want to push them too hard because then they'll, you know, develop a, a resentment for wanting to hunt because you're pushing too much, no different than a dad wanting their son to be a baseball star or baseball, or football, basketball, or whatever. You can't push them. You just want them to, you know, want to do it. But I guess, I you know, I'm wanting it pretty hard. And his name's Archer. I don't know where we come up with that name, but my son's (laughs) name's Archer, but you know, you want it, but I got to try to dial it back. And then earlier this year, I'd asked him if he wanted to go hunting this afternoon. And, and, and nine times out of 10, he said, yeah, yeah, let's go. But this time he didn't want to. And, uh, you know, I said, man, today would be a a good day. And it it was, I was really wanting him to go because it was a good day. wind was right. I'd been getting trail cam pictures of a Targeted buck that we were after here on our place here, and I, you know I was I was trying to convince him without saying yeah we're going you know, and uh, he said no I don't want to go, and um, I just assume and my son is it, it, um, just to share it he's autistic he's uh, on the low spectrum which you probably would never know it uh, you know just meeting him but um, anyway it, it uh, there's some behavioral hurdles there and you got to you got to handle things a little differently with him but. Great kid, great personality, not your typical what you would think of a autistic kid, but he is on the low spectrum of autism. So there are some small hurdles for us, but we're doing good, great relationship. But I was asking him just trying to get to the bottom of it. Well, I didn't realize this, but he said, he goes, I'm not going to be a hunter, Dad. He tells me that. And I'm like, and he goes, I'm going to be a surgeon. He wants to be a surgeon. That's what he tells me. And I'm like, well, you can be a surgeon. I said, people people hunt that do all kinds of things. He goes, well, I'm not going to be a hunter. Well, after I, he couldn't really explain what he was meaning. I kept digging and digging. Well, he sees me on TV and he sees me, sees that hunting and the outdoors takes me away from him and my wife and the family so much. He thinks that I'm trying to uh, ask him to hunt so that he will be a hunter as a profession. Cause he, was looking at things until, you know, this year when we got things cleared up. He thought that hunting was a job. He didn't realize that hunting was just something you had fun that you did or that you provided for your family. Um, so, And I felt horrible because I just assumed that he was latching on and learning like most people was, but he he sees it because it's a little different with me and it's my career. He was thinking that it's a career, and, you know, he was thinking that, I was trying to groom him to be a hunter, and he couldn't be anything else, and I wouldn't be happy unless he was a hunter. So I, I'm so glad that he shared that with me so that we got it into perspective. And and from that point on, um, you know, he, he he sees that hunting is a, a pastime, a hobby. Uh, you know, it's part of our heritage. And, you know, he, he talks about filling the freezer and getting plenty of taco meat for the family. And we're all on the right track now, but, you know, we did have a little hiccup earlier in the year. Um, where he, he wasn't in complete understanding what hunting and everything was. So, but yes, to answer your question, uh, it's it's phenomenal. Even if we just have short one or one hour, hour and a half, two hour hunts, it's so phenomenal to see him be like a sponge. Like oh, watch those leaves, Dad. Or you know he he's picking up on things like oh, Dad, you forgot to spray it down, you know, with the scent killer before we go in. And he's learning about the wind. And you know you just you just don't think a ten year old's paying attention, but they give you little reminders and it just makes you so proud as a father to see him, you know, latching on to things.
0: I tell you what, I'm deaf. I got a daughter too, and she's three. And we, we go on uh shed hunts and in the backyard and, you know, throw some sheds and she goes and picks them up and whatnot. But I'm looking, yeah. I'm definitely looking forward to that time of my life and uh, can, can uh, experience that with my children. But, all right, Travis. If people want to find out more about what you got going on and what you're doing, where should we send
1: them? Oh yeah, well, you know, naturally, our social media is um, uh, that that platform's you know so good for so many people. But you can follow me personally on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at T Bone Outdoors, and then uh, anything Bone Collector would be uh, Bone Collector dot com is our website, and then uh, you know, Realtree. We have a lot of postings on. RealTree Bone Collector, and then T Bone Outdoors.
0: I want to yeah. say thank you very much for coming on the show and chatting with me today. I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, you're welcome, Dan. I appreciate it. appreciate all you do for the outdoor industry. There's so many bloggers and and uh, podcasting stuff out there. We we uh, can't have enough of it. You know, uh, in this day and age, when there's so many folks that would like to see us not hunting or having our guns and bows and and stuff like that. We all got to stick together. You know, so many times you hear different groups like, you know, anti-recurve or anti-compound or anti-gun or whatever. You know, at the end right. of the day, we're small. We need to all stick together. And then the way we do that is sharing our experiences, being positive and, and uh, listening and participating in podcasts and all the media and, and uh, all the social media that we have to. So thank you for all you do. And,
0: and there you have it another hunter profile podcast in the books uh first off i want to say thank you to travis for coming on the show and uh, spending a little time with us and second i want to thank you guys for listening hopefully you guys enjoyed this podcast um i found it very interesting i always love to talk to everybody from the average joe to maybe someone like travis who is quote unquote in the hunting industry and uh can provide a different angle on some things and uh, everybody's different. And that's why I love doing what I'm doing because nobody's story is the same. And hopefully you guys find that interesting and find it interesting how I'm bringing these stories to you. Um, If there's someone that you feel needs to be on this show and you want me to interview them, message me. Send me an email, uh, ninefingerchronicles at gmail.com. Send me a Facebook message or a a Twitter message, whatever you want. And uh, if you know uh, an average Joe who's uh, killed a couple big bucks and has a cool story that they might want to share, send me a message with their name and their contact information. If there is maybe somebody in the hunting industry, whether it's a quote unquote, uh, I guess, a hunting entertainer or someone who, you know, owns a cool product or, you know, a, a piece of equipment that you feel needs to be on the show and you want me to interview those people, you know, send me a message. So, I'm open for just about anything. I want to keep this like I like I said at the very beginning when I started this. I want to keep this just as much in your guys' hands as in my hands as well. So, anybody, anything, I'm i'm op- I'm game to talk to anybody i also want to send a quick shout out to exodus trail cameras for supporting the podcast and the show and the blog and all that stuff go and check them out at exodusoutdoorgear.com and uh, look into their products i tell you what their trail cameras are badass now if you haven't already Go to iTunes and subscribe to this podcast. Go to Stitcher and subscribe to this podcast. Leave a review in iTunes. Let me know what you think. Um, If you guys have any questions or just want to, you know, maybe exchange a couple emails, hit me up or message me on Facebook, Um, Nine Finger Chronicles on Facebook, uh, Twitter and Instagram. Follow me on all those things. And that should do it Uh, i tell you what this this train is just started to keep rolling that didn't make any sense anyway this train is rolling and i'm loving where it's going so uh, hopefully you guys are too have a great weekend and remember to wear your damn safety harness